0: 1. English Literature – Its History and Its Significance for the Life of the English-Speaking World A textbook for schools by William J. Long. The H.D. Heidelberg Preface this book, which presents the whole splendid history of English literature from Anglo-Saxon times to the close of the Victorian era, has three specific aims. The first is to create or to encourage in every student the desire to read the best books, and to know literature itself rather than what has been written about literature. The second is to interpret literature both personally and historically. That island to show how a great book generally reflects not only the author's life and thought but also the spirit of the age and the ideals of the nation's history. The third aim is to show, by a study of each successive period, how our literature has steadily developed from its first simple songs and stories to its present complexity in prose and poetry. To carry out these aims we have introduced the following features. 1. A brief accurate summary of historical events and social conditions in each period, and a consideration of the ideals which stirred the whole nation, as in the days of Elizabeth, before they found expression in literature, to a study of the various literary epics in turn, showing what each gained from the epic preceding, and how each aided in the development of a national literature, three a readable biography of every important writer, showing how he lived and worked, how he met success or failure, how he influenced his age, and how his age influenced him, for a study and analysis of every author's best works, and of many of the books required for college entrance examinations, five selections enough especially from earlier writers, and from writers not likely to be found in the home or school library to indicate the spirit of each author's work, and directions as to the best works to read, and where such works may be found in inexpensive editions, six a frank, and each nickel discussion of each great writer's work as a whole, and a critical estimate of his relative place and influence in our literature. Seven a series of helps to students and teachers at the end of each chapter, including summaries, selections for reading, bibliographies, a list of suggestive questions, and a chronological table of important events in the history and literature of each period. Eight throughout this book we have remembered Roger Ascham's suggestion made over three centuries ago and still pertinent, that, tis a poor way to make a child love study by beginning with the things which he naturally dislikes, we have laid emphasis upon the delights of literature, we have treated books not as mere instruments of research which is the danger in most of our studies but rather as instruments of enjoyment and of inspiration, and by making our study as attractive as possible we have sought to, encourage the student to read widely for himself, to choose the best books, and to form his own judgment about what our first Anglo-Saxon writers called the things worthy to be remembered. To those who may use this book in their homes or in their classrooms, the writer ventures to offer one or two friendly suggestions out of his own experience as a teacher of young people. First, the amount of space here given to different periods and authors is not an index of the relative amount of time to be spent upon the different subjects. Thus, To tell the story of Spencer's life and ideals requires as much space as to tell the story of Tennyson, but the average class will spend its time more pleasantly and profitably with the latter poet than with the former. Second, many authors who are and ought to be included in this history need not be studied in the classroom. A textbook is not a catechism but a storehouse, in which one finds what he wants, and some good things beside. Few classes will find time to study Blake or Newman for instance, but in nearly every class there will be found one or two students who are attracted by the mysticism of Blake or by the profound spirituality of Newman. Such students should be encouraged to follow their own spirits, and to share with their classmates the joy of their discoveries, and they should find in their textbook the material for their own study and reading. A third suggestion relates to the method of teaching literature, and here it might be well to consider the word of a great poet, that if you would know where the ripest cherries are, ask the boys and the blackbirds, it is surprising how much a young person will get out of the Merchant of Venice, and somehow arrive at Shakespeare's opinion of Shylock and Portia, if we do not bother him too much with notes and critical directions as to what he ought to seek and find, turn a child and a donkey loose in the same field, and the child heads straight for the beautiful spots where brooks are running and birds singing, while the donkey turns as naturally to weeds and thistles. In our study of literature we have perhaps too much sympathy with the latter, and we even insist that the child come back from his own quest of the ideal to join us in our critical companionship. In reading many textbooks of late, and in visiting many classrooms, the writer has received the impression that we lay too much stress on second-hand criticism, passed down from book to book, and we set our pupils to searching for figures of speech and elements of style as if the great books of the world were subject to chemical analysis. This seems to be a mistake, for two reasons, first, the average young person has no natural interest in such matters, and second, he is unable to appreciate them, he feels unconsciously with Chaucer, and as for me, though that my witty light, on books for to read I immediately take, indeed. Many mature persons including the writer of this history are often unable to explain at first the charm or the style of an author who pleases them, and the more profound the impression made by a book, the more difficult it is to give expression to our thought and feeling. To read and enjoy good books is with us. As with Chaucer, the main thing, to analyze the author's style or explain our own enjoyment seems of secondary and small importance. However that may be, we state frankly our own conviction that the detailed study and analysis of a few standard works which is the only literary pabulum given to many young people in our schools bears the same relation to true literature that theology bears to religion, or psychology to friendship. One is a more or less unwelcome mental discipline, the other is the joy of life. The writer ventures to suggest, therefore, that, since literature is our subject, we begin and end with good books and that we stand aside while the great writers speak their own message to our pupils. In studying each successive period, let the student begin by reading the best that the age produced, let him feel in his own way the power and mystery of Beowulf, the broad charity of Shakespeare, the sublimity of Milton, the romantic enthusiasm of Scott, and then, when his own taste is pleased and satisfied, a new one will arise, to know something about the author, the times in which he lived and finally of criticism, which, in its simplicity, is the discovery that the men and women of other ages were very much like ourselves, loving as we love, bearing the same burdens, and following the same ideals, lo, with the ancient roots of man's nature twines the eternal passion of song, ever love fans it, ever life feeds it, time cannot age it, death cannot slay, to answer the questions which arise naturally between teacher and pupil concerning the books that they read, is one object of this volume. It aims not simply to instruct but also to inspire, to trace the historical development of English literature, and at the same time to allure its readers to the best books and the best writers. And from beginning to end it is written upon the assumption that the first virtue of such a work is to be accurate, and the second to be interesting. The author acknowledges, with gratitude and appreciation, his indebtedness to Professor William Lyon Phelps for the use of his literary map of England. And to the keen critics, teachers of literature and history, who have read the proofs of this book, and have improved it by their good suggestions. William J. Long Stamford, Connecticut Chapter I Introduction: The Meaning of Literature Hold the Highway. And thy Gostileda, Chaucer's Truth on, on, you noblest English, follow your spirit, Shakespeare's Henry V The Shell and the Book, A Child and a Man were one day walking on the seashore when the child found a little shell and held it to his ear suddenly he heard sounds, strange, low, melodious sounds, as if the shell were remembering and repeating to itself the murderers of its ocean home, the child's face filled with wonder as he listened, here in the little shell, apparently, was a voice from another world, and he listened with delight to its mystery and music, then came the man, explaining that the child heard nothing strange, that the pearly curves of the shell simply caught a multitude of sounds too faint for human ears. And filled the glimmering hollows with the murderer of innumerable echoes. It was not a new world, but only the unnoticed harmony of the old that had aroused the child's wonder. Some such experience as this awaits us when we begin the study of literature, which has always two aspects, one of simple enjoyment and appreciation, the other of analysis and exact description. Let a little song appeal to the ear, or a noble book to the heart, and for the moment, at least, we discover a new world a world so different from our own that it seems a place of dreams and magic, to enter and enjoy this new world, to love good books for their own sake, is the chief thing, to analyze and explain them is a less joyous but still an important matter, behind every book is a man, behind the man is the race, and behind the race are the natural and social environments whose influence is unconsciously reflected, these also we must know, if the book is to speak its whole message, in a word, We have now reached a point where we wish to understand as well as to enjoy literature, and the first step, since exact definition is impossible, is to determine some of its essential qualities. Qualities of literature. The first significant thing is the essentially artistic quality of all literature. All art is the expression of life in forms of truth and beauty, or rather, it is the reflection of some truth and beauty which are in the world but which remain unnoticed until brought to our attention by some sensitive human soul, just as the delicate curves of the shell reflect sounds and harmonies too faint to be otherwise noticed. A hundred men may pass a hayfield and see only the sweaty toil and the windrows of dried grass, but here is one who pauses by a Romanian meadow, where girls are making hay and singing as they work. He looks deeper, sees truth and beauty where we see only dead grass. And he reflects what he sees in a little poem in which the hay tells its own story, Yesterday's flowers am I and I have drunk my last sweet draught of dew. Young maidens came and sang me to my death, the moon looks down and sees me in my shroud, the shroud of my last dew. Yesterday's flowers that are yet in me must needs make way for all tomorrow's flowers. The maidens, too, that sang me to my death must even so make way for all the maids that are to come, and as my soul so to their soul will be laden with fragrance of the days gone by, the maidens that tomorrow come this way will not remember that I once did bloom, for they will only see the newborn flowers, yet will my perfume-laden soul bring back, as a sweet memory, to women's hearts their days of maidenhood, and then they will be sorry that they came to sing me to my death, and all the butterflies will mourn for me, I bear away with me the sunshine's dear remembrance, and the low soft murderers of the spring, My breath is sweet as children's prattle is, I drank in all the whole earth's fruitfulness, to make of it the fragrance of my soul that shall outlive my death. One who reads only that first exquisite line, Yesterday's flowers am I, can never again see hay without recalling the beauty that was hidden from his eyes until the poet found it. In the same pleasing, surprising way, all artistic work must be a kind of revelation. Thus architecture is probably the oldest of the arts, yet we still have many builders but few architects. That island man whose work in wood or stone suggests some hidden truth and beauty to the human senses. So in literature, which is the art that expresses life in words that appeal to our own sense of the beautiful, we have many writers but few artists. In the broadest sense, perhaps, literature means simply the written records of the race, including all its history and sciences as well as its poems and novels, in the narrower sense literature is the artistic record of life, and most of our writing is excluded from it, just as the mass of our buildings, mere shelters from storm and from cold, are excluded from architecture, a history or a work of science maybe and sometimes is literature, but only as we forget the subject matter and the presentation of facts in the simple beauty of its expression, the second quality of literature is its suggestiveness, its appeal to our emotions and imagination rather than to our intellect. It is not so much what it says as what it awakens in us that constitutes its charm. When Milton makes Satan say, Myself and hell, he does not state any fact, but rather opens up in these three tremendous words a whole world of speculation and imagination. When Faustus in the presence of Helen asks, Was this the face that launched a thousand ships? He does not state a fact or expect an answer. He opens a door through which our imagination enters a new world, a world of music, love, beauty, heroism, the whole splendid world of Greek literature. Such magic is in words. When Shakespeare describes the young Byron as speaking in such apt and gracious words that aged ears play and at his tales, he has unconsciously given not only an excellent description of himself, but the measure of all literature which makes us play truant with the present world and run away to live a while in the pleasant realm of fancy. The province of the Lord is not to instruct but to delight, and only as literature delights us, causing each reader to build in his own soul that lordly pleasure house, of which Tennyson dreamed in his palace of art. Is it worthy of its name? The third characteristic of literature. Arising directly from the other two. Is its permanence. The world does not lie by bread alone. Notwithstanding its hurry and bustle and apparent absorption in material things, it does not willingly let any beautiful thing perish. This is even more true of its songs than of its painting and sculpture, though permanence is a quality we should hardly expect in the present deluge of books and magazines pouring day and night from our presses in the name of literature. But this problem of too many books is not modern, as we suppose. It has been a problem ever since Caxton brought the first printing press from Flanders four hundred years ago and in the shadow of Westminster Abbey opened his little shop and advertised his wares as good and chip even earlier a thousand years before Caxton and his printing press the busy scholars of the Great Library of Alexandria found that the number of parchments was much too great for them to handle and now when we print more in a week than all the Alexandrian scholars could copy in a century it would seem impossible that any production could be permanent that any song or story could live to give delight in future ages, but literature is like a river in flood, which gradually purifies itself into ways, the mud settles to the bottom, and the scum rises to the top, when we examine the writings that by common consent constitute our literature, the clear stream purified of its dross, we find at least two more qualities, which we call the tests of literature, and which determine its permanence, tests of literature, the first of these is universality, that island the appeal to the widest human interests and the simplest human emotions, though we speak of national and race literatures, like the Greek or Teutonic, and though each has certain superficial marks arising out of the peculiarities of its own people, it is nevertheless true that good literature knows no nationality, nor any bounds save those of humanity, it is occupied chiefly with elementary passions and emotions, love and hate, joy and sorrow, fear and faith, which are an essential part of our human nature, and the more it reflects these emotions the more surely does it awaken a response in men of every race. Every father must respond to the parable of the prodigal son, wherever men are heroic. They will acknowledge the mastery of Homer, wherever a man thinks on the strange phenomenon of evil in the world. He will find his own thoughts in the book of Job, in whatever place men love their children. Their hearts must be stirred by the tragic sorrow of Oedipus and Kinlear. All these are but shining examples of the law that only as a book or a little song appeals to universal human interest does it become permanent. The second test is a purely personal one, and may be expressed in the indefinite word, style. It is only in a mechanical sense that style is the adequate expression of thought, or the peculiar manner of expressing thought, or any other of the definitions that are found in the rhetorics. In a deeper sense, Style is the man, that island the unconscious expression of the writer's own personality. It is the very soul of one man reflecting, as in a glass, the thoughts and feelings of humanity, as no glass is colorless, but tinges more or less deeply the reflections from its surface. So no author can interpret human life without unconsciously giving to it the native hue of his own soul. It is this intensely personal element that constitutes style. Every permanent book has more or less of these two elements, the objective and the subjective, the universal and the personal, the deep thought and feeling of the race reflected and colored by the writer's own life and experience. The object in studying literature, aside from the pleasure of reading, of entering into a new world and having our imagination quickened, the study of literature has one definite object, and that is to know man. Now man is ever a dual creature. He has an outward and an inner nature. He is not only a doer of deeds, but a dreamer of dreams, and to know him, the man of any age, we must search deeper than his history. History records his deeds, his outward acts largely, but every great act springs from an ideal. And to understand this, we must read his literature, where we find his ideals recorded. When we read a history of the Anglo-Saxons, for instance, we learn that they were sea rovers, pirates, Explorers, great eaters and drinkers, and we know something of their habits and habits, and the lands which they harried and plundered. All that is interesting, but it does not tell us what most we want to know about these old ancestors of ours. Not only what they did, but what they thought and felt, how they looked on life and death, what they loved, what they feared, and what they reverenced in God and man. Then we turn from history to the literature which they themselves produced, and instantly we become acquainted. These hardy people were not simply fighters and freebooters, they were men like ourselves. Their emotions await an instant response in the souls of their descendants. At the words of their gleam, and we thrill again to their wild love of freedom and the open sea, we grow tender at their love of home, and patriotic at their deathless loyalty to their chief, whom they chose for themselves and hoisted on their shields in symbol of his leadership. Once more, we grow respectful in the presence of pure womanhood or melancholy before the sorrows and problems of life, or humbly confident, looking up to the God whom they dared to call the All-Father. All these and many more intensely real emotions pass through our souls as we read the few shining fragments of verses that the jealous ages have left us. It is so with any age or people. To understand them we must read not simply their history, which records their deeds, but their literature, which records the dreams that made their deeds possible. So Aristotle was profoundly right when he said that poetry is more serious and philosophical than history and Gertrude. When he explained literature as the humanization of the whole world, importance of literature. It is a curious and prevalent opinion that literature, like all art, is a mere play of imagination. Pleasing enough. Like a new novel. But without any serious or practical importance. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Literature preserves the ideals of a people and ideals love, faith, duty, friendship, freedom, reverence are the part of human life most worthy of preservation, the Greeks were a marvelous people, yet of all their mighty works we cherish only a few ideals, ideals of beauty in imperishable stone, and ideals of truth in imperishable prose and poetry, it was simply the ideals of the Greeks and Hebrews and Romans, preserved in their literature, which made them what they were and which determine their value to future generations. Our democracy, the boast of all English-speaking nations, is a dream, not the doubtful and sometimes disheartening spectacle presented in our legislative halls, but the lovely and immortal ideal of a free and equal manhood, preserved as a most precious heritage in every great literature from the Greeks to the Anglo-Saxons. All our arts, our sciences, even our inventions are founded squarely upon ideals, For under every invention is still the dream of Beowulf, that man may overcome the forces of nature, and the foundation of all our sciences and discoveries is the immortal dream that men shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In a word, our whole civilization, our freedom, our progress, our homes, our religion, rest solidly upon ideals for their foundation. Nothing but an ideal ever endures upon earth. It is therefore impossible to overestimate the practical importance of literature, which preserves these ideals from fathers to sons, while men, cities, governments, civilizations, vanish from the face of the earth. It is only when we remember this that we appreciate the action of the devout Muslim, who picks up and carefully preserves every scrap of paper on which words are written, because the scrap may perchance contain the name of Allah and the ideal is too enormously important to be neglected or lost. Summary of the subject, we are now ready, if not to define, at least to understand a little more clearly the object of our present study. Literature is the expression of life in words of truth and beauty, it is the written record of man's spirit, of his thoughts, emotions, aspirations, it is the history, and the only history, of the human soul, it is characterized by its artistic, its suggestive, its permanent qualities, its two tests are its universal interest and its personal style, its object, aside from the delight it gives us, is to know man, that island the soul of man rather than his actions, and since it preserves to the race the ideals upon which all our civilization is founded, it is one of the most important and delightful subjects that can occupy the human mind, bibliography, note. Each chapter in this book includes a special bibliography of historical and literary works, selections for reading, chronology, etc., and a general bibliography of texts, helps, and reference books will be found at the end. The following books, which are among the best of their kind, are intended to help the student to a better appreciation of literature and to a better knowledge of literary criticism. General Works Woodbury's Appreciation of Literature Baker and Taylor Company, Gates's Studies in Appreciation Macmillan, Bates's Talks on the Study of Literature Houghton, Mifflin, Wurstfold's On the Exercise of Judgment in Literature Dent, Harrison's The Choice of Books Macmillan, Ruskin's Sesame and Lilies, Part I, Matthew Arnold's Essays in Criticism. Essays. Emerson's Books. In Society and Solitude, Dowden's The Interpretation of Literature. In Transcripts and Studies Keegan Paul and Company and the Teaching of English Literature. In New Studies in Literature Houghton, Mifflin, The Study of Literature. Essays by Morley, Nichols, and L. Stephen. Edited by A. F. Blaze to Willard Small. Criticism. Gailey and Scott's An Introduction to the Methods and Materials of Literary Criticism Ginn and Company, Winchester's Principles of Literary Criticism Macmillan, Wurstfold's Principles of Criticism Longman's, Johnson's Elements of Literary Criticism American Book Company, Saints Bearbury's History of Criticism Mead, Poetry, Gomeroy's Handbook of Poetics Ginn and Company, Stegman's The Nature and Elements of Poetry Houghton, Mifflin, Johnson's The Forms of English Poetry American Book Company Alden's specimens of English verse. Holt, Dummery's the beginnings of poetry. Macmillan, Saintsbury's history of English prosody. Macmillan, the drama. Catherine's appreciation of the drama. Baker and Taylor Company, the novel. Raleigh's the English novel. Scribner, Hamilton's the materials and methods of fiction. Baker and Taylor Company, Chapter I. I the Anglo-Saxon or Old English period. Four five zero one zero five zero. I. Our first poetry. Beowulf. Here is the story of Beowulf. The earliest and the greatest epic, or heroic poem, in our literature, it begins with a prologue, which is not an essential part of the story, but which we review gladly for the sake of the splendid poetical conception that produced Sild, kin of the Spear Danes, at a time when the Spear Danes were without a king. A ship came sailing into their harbor. It was filled with treasures and weapons of war, and in the midst of these warlike things was a baby sleeping. No man sailed the ship; it came of itself. Bringing the child, whose name was Sild, now Sild grew and became a mighty warrior, and led the Spear Danes for many years, and was their king, when his son Beowulf had become strong and wise enough to rule, then Weird Fate, who speaks but once to any man, came and stood at hand, and it was time for Sild to go, this is how they buried him, then Sild departed, a word of Weird Spoken, the hero to go to the home of the gods, sadly they bore him to brink of the ocean, Comrades, still heeding his word of command, there rode in the harbor the prince's ship, ready, with prow curving proudly and shining sail set, shipward they bore him, their hero beloved, the mighty they laid at the foot of the mast, treasures were there from far and near gathered, bornies of battle, armor and swords, never a keel sailed out of the harbor so splendidly tricked with the trappings of war, they heaped on his bosom a hoard of bright jewels to fare with him forth on the flood's great breast. No less gift they gave than the unknown provided, when alone, as a child, he came in from the mere, high o'er his head waved a bright golden standard now. Let the waves bear their wealth to the home, sad soul they gave back its gift to the ocean, mournful their mood as he sailed out to sea. And no man, says the poet, neither counselor nor hero, can tell who received that lading. One of Sild's descendants was Rothgar, king of the Danes, and with him the story of our Beowulf begins. Rothgar, in his old age had built near the Siamid Hall called Virat, the most splendid hall in the whole world, where the king and his thanes gathered nightly to feast and to listen to the songs of his gleam, one night, as they were all sleeping, a frightful monster, Grendel, broke into the hall, killed thirty of the sleeping warriors, and carried off their bodies to devour them in his lair under the sea, the appalling visit was speedily repeated, and fear and death reigned in the great hall. The warriors fought at first, but fled when they discovered that no weapon could harm the monster. Hera was left deserted and silent. For twelve winters Grendel's horrible raids continued, and joy was changed to mourning among the Spear Danes. At last the rumor of Grendel crossed over the sea to the land of the Geats, where a young hero dwelt in the house of his uncle, Kynhijlak. Beowulf was his name, a man of immense strength and courage, and a mighty swimmer who had developed his powers fighting the Knickers whales, walruses and seals, in the ice-bound northern ocean. When he heard the story, Beowulf was stirred to go and fight the monster and free the Danes, who were his father's friends. With fourteen companions he crosses the sea. There is an excellent bit of ocean poetry here LL 210 And we get a vivid idea of the hospitality of a brave people by following the poet's description of Beowulf's meeting with Kinrothgar and Queen Wiltio. And of the joy and feasting and storytelling in virat, The picture of Wiltheo passing the mead cup to the warriors with her own hand is a noble one. And plainly indicates the reverence paid by these strong men to their wives and mothers. Night comes on, the fear of Grendel is again upon the Danes. And all withdraw after the king has warned Beowulf of the frightful danger of sleeping in the hall. But Beowulf lies down with his warriors. Saying proudly that. Since weapons will not avail against the monster. He will grapple with him barehanded and trust to a warrior's strength, Forth from the fence, from the misty moorlands, Grendel came gliding God's wrath he bore came under clouds, Until he saw clearly, glittering with gold plates, The mead hall of men, down fell the door, Though fastened with fire bands, open it sprang at the stroke of his paw, Swollen with rage burst in the bale bringer, Flamed in his eyes a fierce light, likest fire, At the sight of men again sleeping in the hall, Grendel laughs in his heart, thinking of his feast, he seizes the nearest sleeper, crushes his bone case, with a bite, tears him limb from limb, and swallows him, then he creeps to the couch of Beowulf and stretches out a claw, only to find it clutched in a grip of steel, a sudden terror strikes the monster's heart, he roars, struggles, tries to jerk his arm free, but Beowulf leaps to his feet and grapples his enemy barehanded, to and fro they surge. Tables are overturned, golden benches ripped from their fastenings, the whole deal.